Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. And um, so today we've got Dan Bunting with us. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing well. Thanks. Good to see you. And Justin Dobbs. How are you, Justin? Doing well, thank God. You doing okay, Jonathan? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good today. So, um, and uh, Scott Spencer might be joining us today, um, but he's going to be uh, a little bit late. So we'll pick him up if he's able to get on. Uh, later on. So we'll go ahead in our discussion of what we're going to be talking about. Um, what we wanted to talk about today is just talking about the local church uh, and talk about the importance of the local church, what the local church is. Um, does God even, does he want me to be in a church? Uh, why would he want me to be in a church? Uh, what are the benefits of that? All, all those types of questions. I'm um, going to try to look at that biblically and we'll talk about maybe why that's important and why we want to do that in just a minute. Um, but just from a reading of the New Testament, you can see very clearly that the church is a part of God's plan. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to build my church. Um, you know, he, he had every intention of building his church, establishing it, putting it on a foundation and, and, and inviting people in. And it was going to last. The gates of Hades would not prevail against it and, and those sorts of things. Um, and then we also see that God takes very seriously what happens in his church or to his church. Um, and I'll just bring up one example, and then we'll start kind of defining what the church is and, and looking at some of the benefits. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, this is one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of the local churches that he established uh, in Corinth. And through this chapter, he's talking about kind of the foundation of the church. Uh, so he says in like verse 5, uh, you know, who is Apollos, who is Paul, servants through whom, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he goes on to complete the, the metaphor that he's using at the end of verse 9 by saying, you are God's field, you are God's building. Um, and then continuing in verse 10, expounding on that architectural metaphor that you are God's building. He's there are all these different types of materials that Paul used in constructing the building of God, and that building is his church. And then he says in verse 16, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He says that right on the heels of some of the materials that were used in the building of God's building ended up burning away kind of falling away and that sort of thing. Uh, and God takes that very seriously. He takes very seriously what happens in his church. And there are other places we could go to illustrate how God feels about his church, his temple, his building, his body. Those are all kind of synonyms talking about the same type of thing here. Um, but before we start getting into more detail, uh, Justin, would you just take a minute and kind of define and, and help us to understand, like, what do we mean when we say the church or the body? Or, or what does that mean? What does that not mean? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, churches are where we throw out all the time today, and it gets used kind of in a biblical way, sometimes not so much in a biblical way, um, and sometimes only in a spiritual sense, which is a uh, just a kind of a frustration in a way. Um, church is one of these words that has gotten religious over time. It's kind of like baptism, where baptism just means wash, immerse, uh, and then we have uh, made it into a spiritual word and so we've lost the meaning of it baptizes something specific in a spiritual sense and, and it's not but when you look at the scriptures scriptures uses the word church uh, ecclesia uh, is the greek for what that's word uh, that's what that's worth i guess uh, but but you can look that up and see how it's used 
uh, in a few different ways. One of the ways that it's used is actually just to talk about a group of people getting together that's not religious at all. Uh, Matthew 16 uh, is when we go to talk about Jesus's church. But if you look at Acts chapter 18, uh, I think we've gone to this passage here not too long ago, actually. Um, but in Acts 18, and then in 19, Paul is making his way into Ephesus. And then in Acts 19, there is this riot uh, that has happened. And it's interesting, verse 32, uh, I mean, they are disturbing the entire city. Verse 32, some are crying out one thing, some another, for the ecclesia was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd come together. And, and so there, the word ecclesia, uh, assembly, is actually referring to a group of people who are rioting in the city. It has nothing to do with spiritual things at all. Uh, and obviously, we don't want to be that kind of church where we come together. We don't know what we're about. Uh, and we're just chanting angry things. Um, maybe sometimes assemblies might look like that. And you can see in the first century, Paul's having to address some problems with that. But that's just one general way. To kind of quickly get into spiritual uh, ways that it's used, it seems like it's used primarily in three different ways. Uh, maybe you've heard local church and universal church. Uh, that's true. In Matthew 16, you mentioned that Jesus, I'll build my church. There's only one church. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about one body. There's one church. And so maybe we often think that, well, I'm part of the one church, and that's enough. I'm part of the church that matters. But you keep reading the New Testament, and it's used in these other ways that go beyond just one church, like Revelation 2 through 3 is an easy example. You have seven churches there, and they're marked by geographical locations. Uh, but another interesting thing is how the third way, um, you've got universal, one big church, local church, kind of groups of Christians by geography. Uh, they're committed to each other, and that commitment's part of what we're talking about today. But the other idea is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, you'll see how Paul talks about when the church is churching, like when the assembly is actually assembled together. There are certain rules that apply. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 11, 18 talks about when you come together as a church. First Corinthians 14 talks about rules in the assembly that certain people aren't to speak or to speak up, to speak in a certain way. Uh, and obviously when the assembly is over, those rules don't apply anymore. And, and so a lot of the New Testament deals with what happens in that assembly. And if you don't have a local church made up of people who are part of the church, then that assembly doesn't really happen and a lot of the rules and instructions and encouragements in Paul's letters don't really have a place to fit if we don't see a local church getting together made up of people who are part of the one church, part of Christ's body. So that, that assembly and what we're assembling about seems to be pretty important in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we see all that in the New Testament. We see that Christ planned that. A lot of Paul's instructions were pertaining to the church gathering together. And so when we say church, what we mean is God's people, his people that are saved, washed, sanctified, that are together uh, in one sense or another. And like Justin just went through, there are a few different senses that the Bible uses to talk about the oneness or the togetherness of God's people. Um, that could be all of his people across time, across space, but also his people selectively in one geographic location. Um, and so God clearly values bringing his people together, having them together, separating them from the world, those sorts of things. What's interesting is the idea of a, an assembly or a collection 
is not just a value that Jesus introduced in the New Testament. It's something that God's people were told to value and that they did value in times past. And Dan was mentioning just before when, when we were going to get on that in some of the Psalms, um, even there, they talk about the value of coming together, being a part of the assembly. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the, the Psalms and, and Israel's history with that type of thought process? Yeah, it, I think what's what's significant about their, their use in the Psalms, and we also see this uh, throughout the Old Testament, it's used in a very normal way, as in uh, there's nothing special about uh, the moments that there's a discussion about a congregation or an assembly or a gathering of the people. Sometimes special note is saying that even all the women and all the little children were there, and so that that was a special description. But there are so many times where all of God's people would come together and do things specifically, sometimes to hear an announcement or to get encouragement, um, uh, sometimes in the book of Ezra to, to hear the word of God read to them. Uh, it, but the book of Psalms, which is a book to be used by individuals and as, as well as by groups, and so many times you can tell it's, it's written for groups of people to sing them together, it's, it's very natural and almost taken for granted that, that there is this congregational or gathered people idea to it. The way this, the book of Psalms opens in Psalm 1, uh, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It, it says the, the blessed man is the one who isn't associating with those wicked ones, the, the wicked and the sinners and the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And so our, our focus, my own focus is in the law of the Lord. But at the end of the psalm in verse 5, therefore the wicked shall not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It just assumes that God's people are a group of people. Um, it's not a bunch of individuals uh, on their own, but a group and a gathering of peoples all together. In Psalm 42, where uh, the the sons of Korah have this lament of, of difficulties that are going on. They, they are desiring after God like the, like the deer pants for the water. And verse 4, in the midst of these difficulties, these things I remember, and this is Psalm 42, verse 4, these things I remember and pour out my soul within me, how I went with the throng and led them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, a multitude-keeping holy day. And then he goes into this refrain in verse five that shows up another time in the psalm and then in the following psalm, how in the middle of this difficulty that the psalmist is dealing with, he goes with the throng, the great multitude, the great crowd of people as they are worshiping God on the holy day. And so many, uh, th there were some feast days that very specifically said that Israel had to gather together. And so it was commanded that they would be a congregation. It was expected that they would be an assembly of people. And so everyone had to have their own relationship and own, their own knowledge with, of God, because that's the way God does uh, see us. He sees us as individuals. But everybody had a collective connection with God, too. J just one more small point. Uh, beginning in Psalm 120, you get psalms that are short, and sweet and easy to listen, easy to read, easy to understand, it seems, uh, and they're called the Songs of Ascents, and it goes from 120 all the way through, is it 138, 134, it's these Songs of Ascents, 
And uh, my understanding is my images, Jerusalem was on the top of the mountains, it was way up high. And as the people are coming together and either ascending into the city together, or even ascending into the temple grounds together, these are the songs that they would sing. And when you read these songs in the book of Psalms, um, they're short and sweet. They, they sound like folk songs compared to maybe the complex uh, psalms elsewhere. These sound like the ones that families could sing together, that small groups could easily share together. And just that sense that God has given us a book that kind of takes that concept for granted. This is what people will do. This is the way God's people will behave. I think that that's a strong argument to join with God's people. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and Yeah, go ahead, Justin. Well, I just, I want to be a bit of a, uh, I hate to use a phrase on this, uh, this discussion, uh, but like a devil's advocate here. Um, I think we've probably all met people who say things uh, like, you know, a hike in the woods is my sanctuary, or, mm -hmm. you know, I, I remember going whitewater rafting uh, on a Saturday and the guide, we got into a spiritual conversation. And I said, so what are you doing tomorrow? And he's like, well, I'll be out here again on the river. And he pointed to the cliffs and the white water. And he's like, you know, where else can I meet God like this? And, you know, it's, it's almost hard to argue with a guy in that environment like that. Um, so like John 4, the, the woman at the well in Samaria, to, to your point, Dan, and to the psalmist's point, I think, um, Jerusalem's a place you need to go. But the woman in Samaria says, hey, I perceive you're a prophet. This is John 40 or John 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say in Jerusalem, you know, songs of ascent. And then Jesus says in verse 23, the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, so I don't know. How would you respond to somebody in that kind of mindset where they say, like, as long as I'm worshiping God in spirit and truth, it doesn't matter where I am, doesn't matter who I'm with, I can do it anywhere with anybody uh, i mean I, I see some responses that, that i probably should make but do you have an idea on that well one big idea that i think is just really important to realize is they're basing that on a very true idea where else can i meet god like this well literally nowhere this is the only place the woods is the only place where you can meet god in the woods you're not going to meet god <laughs> in, the in the waterfalls in a church building and God made those. He made the Grand Canyon, and I don't know if he named it that way, but we people go to see the Grand Canyon, and whether they acknowledge God or not, they often say, oh my God, and they recognize the power that went into making something so beautiful, and I think it's worth acknowledging the truth in that, but that doesn't negate the fact that so many of the Psalms are built on the very premise of doing this together, and so yes, Go find what God has made that is beautiful, but don't ignore the other things that God has made to be beautiful, not just um, the blind person may never see the Grand Canyon, but there are other things that God has made uh, sp specifically for his people, the, the songs and the praise that we join in together, uh, the knowledge of the word, uh, the handshake and the hug and the uh, the, the shoulder to shoulder feeling we get when we are in a crowd of God's people. I think God built us to desire and need those things. And the waterfalls and the forests, I love God in those as well. 
but it's not a one or the other. It, it, I think I think we need to. I like to acknowledge the good in that, but I, I think it's foolish. I, um, it's reckless to think that 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 one is going to do it all. Yeah, and I think about uh, in Ephesians. You said you know God's made a lot of beautiful things. In in Ephesians, Paul says, "Did you know that the spiritual powers and forces are actually in awe?" of what Jesus is doing in you in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship. So if you want to see God's power at work, um, you ought to go and see other Christians. Um, so I think that's that's helpful to think about seeing God's beauty at work in God's people. I don't know, Jonathan, would you add anything to that? Yeah, and that, that brings me to kind of think about um, another passage I want to spend some time looking at in 1 Corinthians 12 where, um, you know, if, if you kind of get this attitude kind of coupled with that idea of, you know, I'm, I'm closest to God when I'm in nature, um, usually what accompanies that kind of feeling or thought is this idea of like, I don't really need anyone else. Um, you know, it's just, it's just between me and God. Um, and in a sense, Dan kind of hit on that. That's true. Um, we will be judged for ourselves and our actions not the actions of anyone that's around us or our families or those that are part of the church that we're a part of or, or things like that. Um, but there is this idea um, in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Um, Paul makes it very clear, and he uses a, a, a picture that we can, I think, really understand. Um, we understand how our physical anatomy works, how our bodies work. Um, I have different body parts that do different things. Um, and he's going to start discussing in detail, like a scenario that's really ridiculous, uh, like in, in the physical sense. You know, if if uh, I get this attitude or if one of my body parts gets this attitude that it doesn't need, uh, you know, the rest of my body, it can survive on its own. It's not going to last very long. Um, Jesus's words in John 15 are similar, uh, where he says that I'm the vine. Um, and apart from me, you can't do anything. Um, here, Paul is saying that what Christ is, he is the head of the body. Um, and we're all part of that body. And we all, when we became Christians, when we were baptized into that one body, we're sharing in that fellowship. And we're just one of many in this body of working believers that God has established. But if we develop this attitude that like, it's just me and God, I don't need anyone else. I don't need to be a part of a local group. I don't need to be a part of God's church. Uh, I can have my faith to myself in between me and God. I think Paul would have this to say, um, about that attitude and kind of just think about that attitude. And is that how God purposed for his relationship with you to work uh, according to first Corinthians 12. So in verse 15 and, and following, um, he says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he has chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head to the feet say, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So that's a, a lot that Paul is saying there, breaking down. Um, Justin, do you want to kind of work through, and, and maybe we could start with like, what's, what's the context of what Paul is discussing here? Because I think that's important in understanding, especially the first part, 15 through 20. Um, and then like, what's he saying about the group and how the group is supposed to be thinking about each other? Yeah, well, I mean, Paul's addressing a, uh, a church that has all kinds of problems. So here's a, a local congregation, and they are splintering in every direction, and, and they're splintering in all kinds of different ways. Um, beginning in chapter one, he talks about a group who's saying, I'm of Paul, and others say, I'm of Apollos and Cephas. Some are even saying, I'm of Christ, as though he's on par with, you know, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and they don't get the kind of unity they should have. Uh, and, and then some of them are dividing over how to handle sin. Uh, they're taking each other to court. Uh, there's a brother who has his father's wife. I mean, there's, there are all kinds of issues. And so in chapter 12, 13, and 14, it seems like the main thing he's dealing with is different people having different gifts. And he's going to boil it down to you don't know how to love each other. You are given gifts so that you could serve each other. And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think that a lot of what um, I feel like I'm going to go off on a tangent here. A lot of what, what, what I've been seeing here in the last couple of years, um, when COVID hit, um, we are all scrambling, figuring out how do we, how do we worship together? How do we be together? And then this thing called Zoom came along and we said, well, I can kind of hold off on that and I can worship from home. And some of that was for safety's sake. And, but I've seen this, this attitude kind of creep in. And it's an attitude that's probably been there a long time, but we go to worship thinking, or we go to an assembly, we, we church because we get something out of it. Paul's talking about a situation in which we need to be giving. I've been given a gift. Maybe you're a nose, maybe you're an ear, maybe you're an eyebrow, I don't know. Uh, but what, whatever it is that you have, Paul says in this section, God has arranged the members, verse 18, each one as he chose and you belong with the body, and you belong to the work of the body. You know, God uses different metaphors for the church. You, you mentioned earlier uh, in chapter three that he's got this rundown of various metaphors, uh, God's fellow workers, God's field, and then God's building. And here we're getting another one, which is body. And a body is kind of unique in this thing because collectively it grows. And it should be my goal as a Christian, not just myself to grow, but to get other Christians to grow too. And now we can start talking about Matthew 28, uh, where you know discipleship isn't something that we just we we become and then we stop. He says, you know, we're, we're to learn to observe all that Jesus commanded the apostles. Ephesians 4 talks about how the unity that happens unity is utility for growth. And so it should be joined with other disciples here. So so if I'm looking at other Christians, they have different gifts than me. I have different gifts than them. That should bind me to them and draw me close to them so I can find ways that I fit into their lives and they fit into mine, ways that they, they need me and I need them. So this, this whole 
local church assembly situation is really about caring for the growth of other Christians. God designed me to fit in with these people so that I could help them grow in ways that they're not going to grow unless I serve them. Uh, so I need to be looking for ways to serve. Yeah, and I think that's really great. And then, it, especially like like after that, so you get into like verse 21, after Paul establishes like, look, you're supposed to be helping one another. Everyone is a valuable part of this body. He addresses the direct thing that we just kind of discussed. If you have this attitude that like, you don't need that or you don't need to be a part of that, um, you need to get over yourself because you do, right? Um, if, if you think about just kind of the, the picture um, that it says here in like verse 21, in verse 21, it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Um, think of how ridiculous that would be if your eyeball had a mind of its own, which it can't even, but if, if your eyeball had a mind of its own and it thought, you know what, um, I can see and uh, I'm, I'm really good at that. I really feel good about my abilities and different things like that. Um, I don't really need the hand um, anymore. Um, and the eye put up this vote that was like, you know what, we're just going to cut the hand off because we don't need our hands in the body. Your body would drastically be affected and you're not going to be able to nourish yourself and help yourself. And eventually the eye is going to be dead because it's cutting off different parts of it. Same thing with the head to the feet saying, I have no need of you. You're going to, you're going to take off these parts of the body that seem to be weaker than you, or that seem to be kind of getting in the way. But Paul makes it very clear. Those weaker seeming parts are indispensable. Um, they're all part of the same body that's here. And so we need to make sure that we view God's body, God's church, in the same way that God views it. He views everything as an equal part and that we all need to be together for the help of growth. Um, and that leads, because Justin mentioned that idea, how the, of the different images that are used in scripture to describe God's people, the, the field, the building, the body is unique because it's the thing that grows um, and needs to be growing together. And Paul talks about that and the importance of that in another place in detail in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it's a really, really great chapter, I think, to read and just see uh, the, the value of the church like all throughout. Um, but I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Oh, we'll start reading in verse 11. Uh, it says, and he is talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints of the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, just over and over, all throughout chapter four, there's this idea of unity together, being put together, equipped, uh, joined, and growth um, that Paul is really emphasizing in this idea. And the purpose of all of that growth is so that we can become more like Jesus. And that's one of the values that God knew and understood, because that's a, that's a lofty goal, right? You want to be like Jesus, that's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> that's really difficult. There are a lot of things that need to be changed, a lot of discipline. A lot of things that are going to be involved in being like Jesus. And to try to take that task on by yourself, 
that's kind of difficult because <laughs> um, there's going to be, you know, a lot of hard things that are trying to get in your way. Paul mentions uh, all kinds of different waves of doctrine and, and human cunning and craftiness, deceitful schemes and things like that. And so God designed it in such a way where we become a group, a unit that can help one another and teach one another and keep each other accountable so that we can attain to this goal of being more like Jesus. Um, and it really, at the end of the day, if, if you have an attitude that it's like, I don't need God's people, I can, I can do my religion by myself, what that boils down to is just pride and arrogance and is defeating the whole purpose of what we're supposed to be doing, becoming like Jesus, who was humble um, in, in himself. Um, and so I think that's just really important to see that idea that Paul really fleshes out. And this is not the only place that the idea of growing together and encouraging one another shows up in the Bible. And so we might go to some others here, but you guys have thoughts about that. Go ahead, Justin. I think maybe without meaning to say it this way, uh, what we might be saying when we say, I, I don't need to be with other Christians is we're saying, I, I have no need of growth, um, that I'm already what I need to be, I'm already who I ought to be. Um, and that's, that is prideful, uh, but I think it's just, it's missing out on the lofty goal as you described it, the, the necessary goal of us becoming more and more like Jesus. Uh, we weren't saved just so that we could be rescued from hell. We were saved so that we could glorify God. And so there, there's a lot of movement that needs to happen in my life, and I need you. Uh, and, and so it's not just these long-distance uh, Christian relationships we have that are the most helpful. Uh, the people who know me best are the people who live with me. They, they see me on my best days. They see me on my worst days. And so we need Christians who are with us in a regular way so that they see all the parts of me and, and I see all the parts of them so that we can be most effective in the way that we help each other. Ephesians 4, as you read, um, Christ in verse 15 and 16 is the one who gives the growth. But verse 16 says that he's choosing to work through every joint. So it's not just certain parts that God has plans for uh, the parts of the body that we might think are yeah, I don't, I mean, who, who is the spiritual appendix in your local congregation? Uh, and, you know, nobody wants to be that person, uh, but we might be content to be, you know, the pinky toe. But if you've ever hurt your pinky toe, like, you know, and I'm killing the illustration, but you get the idea is we, we need to be uh, doing the part that we were assigned. However, we might think honorable or dishonorable. It's honorable because it helps people to grow to be like Jesus, me and them. And so do you care about your spiritual growth? Do you care about the spiritual growth of the people around you? Who are you accountable to? Who are you accountable for? All that's part of this picture of growth in the body. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it, it misses one of the big points of the way that God views his people uh, because he doesn't, he doesn't view his individual persons. It's always looking at his people. It's always looking at his children. It's not about uh, some child there's a lot of teaching about God. Uh, God loves you. He cares about you. He knows who you are. And there, there's a lot of very specific down to the individual uh, teaching. And that is so valuable because we live in a society that is disconnected and, and, and we have isolated people who, who are alone or who are depressed or who have been beaten down and they need to hear that they themselves as an individual is someone that God loves and that God values. And 
I think those people, given the chance to be a part of a large community, will will leap up at that opportunity because because that's they they've been alone on their own, and now they can be a part of a family and a group. But there are others who hear that message, who have what they need, who have their own community at work or their own community in their family, and they get a little dose of God, and they don't want to include a new family into their environment. And so they'll take that individuality, God sees me, God has value in me teaching, and they might swing too far with that. It, still in Ephesians in chapter three, when God is is trying to show the heavenly powers and the things that are out there, all of his great work, it says in verse 10, uh, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's not in Dan. It's not even in Jesus, though he uses Jesus. God uses his own power in his own self, but it's not about individual people. And it's not even about the individual son of God. It's this church. It's this great gathering of all of his people. And so, so in that sense, if we think we can do it on our own, we're missing a, a fundamental idea there. And another fundamental, well, Justin, go, uh, go ahead. No, no, I don't, I don't want to break you off. Go, go right ahead. Finish all right. Well, another, this is kind of another long tangent, I guess, but another <laughs> fundamental point is uh, when God made man in the beginning, male and female, did he make them? He made a pair. And uh, that's not a very big congregation, but he began all of humankind to have an interaction of more than one person with this one God. So from the beginning, it has always been this way. And when the, when the priests are talking about the laws and what laws are important and what laws are most important, and they have their own debates and they talk to Jesus about those debates, the two most important laws are you love the Lord and you love your fellow man. And that, that is the sum of our existence on this globe, is that we love God and we love each other. And if that is the foundation and the basis of what creation is all the way back to Genesis, if that's the foundation and the basis of all obedience is that we love God and we love each other, to say that we don't need each other, it flies in the face of, of those very deep uh, uh, bottom layers to the foundation teaching. You landed where I was going to go anyway. Um back in first Corinthians 12 he leads into 13 and and it's this it's this mm -hmm. love um mm -hmm. i forget how many years ago it was now but someone pointed out you, you can't practice a handshake by yourself um and you know you mentioned hugging and handshakes and things like that you know we we need other people we were made for relationships and uh, our god is love and our god is three uh there's this unity uh but not uniformity within god himself that from before the beginning of time he was loving the father the son the spirit were loving one another and he's inviting us into this relationship so to think that autonomy and independence and individuality in the american way uh is is all that it's cracked up to be uh, we're missing so much and i do think uh that our society is seeing that uh, there's been a lot of talk in the last several years uh, about, uh, even from when you know, I was growing up and going into school, you know, self-esteem, and recently it's been self-love and self-care and self-forgiveness. 
And I think it's because we realize just how empty we are. And part of it's because we've not gotten from other people what we feel like we need. And what makes this body different is that we all are saying, we're all confessing, professing that we've gotten what we need from God and not from each other. And now we're just sharing in that. But we're almost making the isolation worse by talking about self-esteem and self-love and self-care and self-respect and self-forgiveness and self-self-self, uh, trying to think that I need to take care of myself, provide for myself, that I have all that I need within me. And we don't. We were made for relationships. We were made for this relationship with God. And so it's not until we meet another person who has a relationship with God and we, in a relationship with God, join with them that we're actually going about the business that God wants us to in this body kind of relationship. Jonathan? Yeah, so that, that, that's really good. I wanna just read a passage that came to mind really quick in Ecclesiastes chapter four. This is, I don't think it's supposed to be meant in a spiritual sense, but it's obviously true in a spiritual sense. This is just secularly true um, in, in humanity. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes four and verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man will prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so Solomon uses a few different examples. And he just says, like, this is better to be with people. Um, if you fall down, they can help you up. If you're cold, they can supply some needs and help you stay warm. If some guy's going to beat you up, your buddies can help you out, <laughs> like, you know, they can protect you, uh, and three is better than two, <laughs> you know, the more, the more, the better, uh, he kind of, he kind of ends with, and so I want to just think about, um, in, in the last couple of minutes, if you guys don't mind, like, what are the benefits, why is it good for God's people to be together, I think we've been really hitting on one, because we need to grow, and when the body is working together well, it does grow, together and so we can help one another but what are some more specific kinds of things and i, I have one um in matthew chapter 18 jesus talks about the instructions that he's giving um for whenever sin is found uh among brethren among believers uh, and he goes through a progression of different steps that you need to go through to deal with the sin and so he says first if your brother sins against you go to him privately try to work it out between the two of you um, and if you can, great. But if he doesn't listen to you, then you bring one or two other people with you. So you've got two or three witnesses to try to talk some sense into him. But if he still doesn't listen to that, then you go and tell it to the church. And I assume the idea of that is now the church as a collective group can go and talk with him, reason with him, try to help him. And if you still won't listen to that, then you separate from him. And so we won't go into detail about, you know, that, that final instruction. But you see this idea, what Jesus had in mind with the church, one of its purposes, would be to help combat and fight against sin in the lives of the members that are there. Uh, and let's just face it, um, we're against an enemy that is really powerful. Um, Paul talks about that in Ephesians. Um, that, you know, we're, we're warring against rulers and authorities and powers. Um, Satan is the great lion that's seeking someone to devour. Uh, he's disguised in an angel of light. He's very deceptive. Sin and temptation are hard, and they attack us nonstop uh, in our life. Why would you ever willingly want to be, like in Ecclesiastes 4, that one guy, knowing that somebody's coming to attack you, and you think, I'm just going to try to handle it by myself. God didn't design it in that way. 
Um, we, we need one another to watch out for one another. And so one of the benefits of the body is that we can help one another overcome sin. Um, we can help one another prepare to stand up against temptation, but also when we fall to sin, help hold one another accountable to repent and come back to the Lord. Um, and, and so that's one that I had in mind. Do you guys have other like specific benefits the Bible talks about, about the, the church and like why we need that? Well, I have one, and, and I think it's worth bringing up, uh, even though it has nothing to do with the Bible, though, though we do see it play out in the Bible. Um, it, human beings, um, I believe, have been created, but even those who believe and have an evolutionary background and belief system, um, most people say that human beings are community beings. Um, people who believe in evolution say we have evolved to be demanding communities, and I say, well, you could say that, but I think God created us to be in communities. And there are so many um, studies and um, uh, scientific studies, both uh, in understanding the psychology of human behavior, as well as just in ad campaigns and trying to get us to buy junk uh, that demonstrates the community feel that, that, uh, that human beings are craving. And I think even more and more in our society, since the, the, the villages and the towns and the cities that we live in are so... Uh, broken up from having a community. Uh, people who like Apple products, um, they, they, th there's this branding that I can be a part of that community. The Volkswagen has a brand and has a community. Uh, the Rolex watches, whatever it is, there's these brands and they're trying to create a community around their brand so that they can create this loyalty and a web of people um, shopping at uh, you know, you can just go to a, gro a grocery store or you can go to that special grocery store. Uh, you can buy your gear online or you can buy your gear from the special outdoors shop. And there's this community that is being uh, uh, pushed, uh, probably exploiting us just so that we'll spend our dollars there. But no. we react that way. Human beings are looking for that so much. Uh, and that's what that's how we thrive when we're in a community. Uh, sports teams are teams. And when the team is together and they are brothers or they are sisters together on the team, they are better. Uh, they're a better team than maybe a team that has greater skills than them. Uh, uh, military, talk about a band of brothers, not a band of individuals, but a band of brothers who are, again, like you were saying, uh, Jonathan, looking out for each other. That the work, uh, work environments, that's such an important thing. It's not about making money. It's if we can have a good work environment, then we will make more money. And uh, that's just the way that human beings operate. And if we are working to join ourselves to people who look at God the right way, that community is going to be the best community we could ever be a part of. And if we are in a good community like that, and we act ornery, and we start breaking up that good church community, we are doing something terrible. And that might be one reason why people don't want to join churches, because I'm a jerk, uh, or there's somebody there who's trying to ruin it, and we need to, you know, we need to speak up and 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 quiet down the, 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 the riffraff when that sort of a behavior is going on. Because, because human, humans want this, and I think that we should help them find the right godly communities. Uh, kind, of, kind of along those same lines, you mentioned uh, buying things online. Uh, we look at reviews, because we mm -hmm. wanna know who's got the best reviews, who's got 5,000 five-star reviews, 
Uh, and if it's only got five-star reviews from 300 people, that's not a large enough pool of people. We want a lot of five-star reviews. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about this kind of review that does happen within the body. Uh, in Ephesians 4, 3, he talks about the idea that we've uh, already attained the unity of the spirit, we need to maintain it, which is going to require certain things of us, things like humility, uh, things like uh, gentleness and patience in verse 2, love. Uh, but then he says in verse 13 that we all have yet to attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And there's mm -hmm. some things that are standing against that. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned sin, but kind of coupled with that is this false teaching verse 14, that there are winds of doctrine, there's human cunning, and there's sort of this, it, it can go the wrong way, where sometimes we're carried with a flood of false opinion, but really, if everyone's got their eyes on Jesus, then what that should do is create this collective barrier against false teaching, that if I start talking about an idea and maybe convince some other people this is the true idea, but it's not biblical, and then some other people start listening but eventually someone says, wait a minute, that's not right because of this passage. And it's like, yeah, that's right. And if we're all seeking Christ, what that can do is as we're bringing up these ideas and talking through truth, is it helps us to filter through these lies so that we're all anchored into the truth of the gospel. That review idea uh, yeah. of not being thrown about by every false teaching, I think is really helpful in this community sense that if I'm going about this on my own, I'm not going to get that. It's built into the church. Uh, but it's not built in to me individually. One yes. thing kind of with that, uh, you mentioned the team, and then I'll, I'll be done, but um, someone illustrated a local church this way. Uh, a local church is not, not so much like a pickup game of basketball. There's a park just down the street, and if I were to go down there, um, I could join a pickup game of basketball probably right about now. They, they get together about 3 o'clock. And I could go down and, uh, and just pick up with these guys. That's different than a team. So for the next hour or so, we'd all play together and we'd work together, but we're not necessarily committed to each other's improvement as an athlete or our plan to, how, how are we going to execute this next week when we play again? Uh, mm -hmm. We're not getting into a regular practice of improvement and improvement together. A local church is not just a loosely grouped together band of Christians. It is Christians who say, hey, next week, same time, we're going to do this again because we want to get better at this and better at this. And so there's this commitment that says we've got a goal. We have something that we need to improve in. We've got uh, an opponent who wants to defeat us. Uh, and so it's a team where we've got this joint level of commitment because we have a joint goal and we're committed to each other. And so if you're not part of this local church idea, uh, you'll find it all through the New Testament, but you're missing out on so many of these things we talked about today, where we're going to have things that we can do better together. That's the way Jesus designed it. Yeah, yeah and I just want to say one more, because this piggybacks a little bit off of another point. Ecclesiastes 4 talks about if one falls, the one can lift him up. If one's cold, one can help warm him. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter 6, uh, it says in Galatians 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And a few sentences later, Paul is giving instructions and saying, like, we need to be doing good. Make sure that you're, you know, sowing what you want to reap. If you sow good, you'll reap righteousness. If you sow bad, you'll reap destruction. 
Um, and then he says, this is interesting in verse nine, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due seasons, we will reap if we do not give up. Um, constantly trying to do good is hard and becomes wearisome. It can't. Um, and life just in general can be wearisome and difficult. And there can just be things that, that come up that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're just hard to deal with. Um, and so we, we, one other thing that God's church does is forms that community of where like we can get help with just life in general. It's not necessarily overcoming Satan or overcoming sin or overcoming temptation, but when life is just hard and you're feeling really down and, and weary, you have God's people to rely on and that they can rely on you whenever they're going through difficulties and hardship and those sorts of things. And so he says in verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Um, so, um, that's just a, a really quick kind of overview of that. There's a lot more that we could probably say about the church and the values of the church and why we need the church. Um, I, I want to just leave with this. If you are not a part of a church, um, to our audience that's listening, ask yourself why that you're not a part of that church, why you're not a part of a church. Um, ask yourself if God would want you to be a part of a church based on what we've talked about and other things that you read in scripture. And if you arrive at the conclusion that I think that you will, if you honestly look at scripture, you'll see, yes, God does want me to be a part of a community of believers in my local area. And you don't know how to do that. We would love to help you do that. Um, we're all kind of scattered up here in the Northeast in the United States. Um, but to any of our listeners that are listening, uh, you can get on our website, you can message us and we can try to help you um, to, you know, become a part of God's community in your local area. I think that God really desires that. He really wants that. And there's so many benefits to that. It will just submit to his plan and his will. God knew what he was doing. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he established his church. And so we want to help everyone to, to be a part of that. Um, so if you have questions about that, you can reach out to us at BibleQuest.tv. Or if you have some other questions that you want us to discuss, you can put those on our website as well. Any other Bible topics, we'd be happy to talk about those on our future shows. Um, but that's all that we have for this week. Uh, and so we'll plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.